Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I mean, it sounds like you've got the best grief guy. I have a great grief guy. Fuck you. <laughs> You're going to destroy this. Welcome to HBO's official Succession podcast. I'm Kara Swisher, and in the world of Succession, even grief is a competition. For some of us, it's a sad day, but for others, it's Coronation Demolition Derby. I mean, I'm sick with grief. Oh, you're sick I, with grief? You might want to put down that fish taco. You're getting your melancholy everywhere. Today, we've got a full house to mourn Logan Roy. First up, Sarah Snook, who plays the one and only Shiv Roy. Then Succession writer and executive producer Lucy Preble is back. Plus, I'll talk with James Stewart and Rachel Abrams, whose new book, Unscripted, tells the story of media mogul Sumner Redstone and how his death rocked his family and his empire. And honestly, it's a toss-up of which story is messier, the Redstones or the Roys. This fourth episode was written by Jesse Armstrong and directed by Lorene Scafaria. It's a day after Logan died. Kendall is wrecked. Roman has pre-grieved. And Shiv is, well, pregnant. They gather for a wake-slash-board meeting at their dad's apartment. After much debate over who should succeed Logan and a piece of paper is found with Kendall's name on it, Kendall and Roman are made co-CEOs. Shiv is, as usual, out of the job. But they swear it's just temporary. The three of them will be equal partners, and for a second, we believe them. Actually, I, I, I never believe them. But soon Kendall goes behind his siblings' back and enlists Hugo to run a smear campaign against their deceased dad. Some people never change. Counter, is your fucking head on straight? I'm twin track. I'm dead, but I'm alive. Joining me now is the amazing Sarah Snook, who plays everyone's favorite cutthroat killer, Shiv Roy. Welcome, Sarah. I'm happy to have you on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So are you a killer? Do you think Shiv is a killer or not? Because this episode shows a lot Ooh. of different parts of her. I think she is a killer long term. I feel like she's the most like Logan, and so she, she uh, in the end, inevitably will end up to be a killer, you know, maybe more than Kendall is. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. She's the killer in training. Yeah. This is a big episode for Shiv, and we'll get into all of it, but I want to start off by asking, what was your reaction when you read the script for episode three and learned that the Logan character had died? Yeah, we'd um we'd been given a heads up that that was going to happen at the beginning of the season, but reading the episode was was really affecting, was very emotional. I think, I think we didn't know how it was going to happen, and also seeing the fallout of events during episode three, the siblings never get to see it happen. It's occurring elsewhere. Even in the final moments, there's a detachment from their father. It meant by the end of the episode, there was an aspect to Sarah reading it, like, is he even really gone? <laughs> you know, does, is this true? Is this real? Which I think is great because that that's going to be the feeling for Shiv and for a lot of for everybody in the in the show. Now your performance on the boat is tremendous. How are you anticipating what Shiv was feeling in the moment? Because your voice is cracking when she called him daddy. Uh, felt like a feeling Shiv doesn't let herself show, but every now and then you do with your eyes for sure. Yeah, I think I think Shiv is someone who's afraid of vulnerability and taught to be afraid of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And so coming into this scene, this is going to be the most exposing time for her. And the stakes are so high with with the prospect of her father 
dying, not being able to be there, having to communicate that she does love him, but also what is the honest truth in this moment is that that her love is very complex and and fraught with a kind of loathing and a self-loathing as well for feeling those things and a frustration and a it's all of that is there in the writing and so finding ways to just let that writing carry you was paramount for me coming into it and also just allowing myself to let go into the into the vulnerability that Shiv otherwise doesn't express. And the last encounter, live encounter you had with Logan, Shiv had with Logan was not good. And in this one, you don't even know if he's living. Is he really, Yeah. is he dead? Is he dead? Was something, meaning you're saying these feelings into the void. Yeah, into, into potentially a vacuum, which also feels very uh, familiar in a way. You know, saying I love you, dad, at any other point in life, even at the time of his death, you would get a silence perhaps back. And so the time that you want it to be answered the most, you're still getting silence. And so there's there's never a satisfaction there. Yeah. So episode four is, is the aftermath of his death. We learn that Chiv is pregnant and she's pretty far along. Uh, when did you learn that Chiv was pregnant? It was always something that, that Jesse had discussed in the writer's room. And so once we decided to bring it into the, the narrative, it added a, com- a completely different take, I guess, on, on some of the scenes. We'll, we'll talk about that. How, how does Shiv feel about becoming a mother from your perspective? Yeah, I think Shiv's got some pretty complicated feelings about becoming a mother. She's in some ways feigning indifference mm-hmm. because it's, again, it's one of those things that's almost too hard to face and Shiv doesn't like dealing with emotions. <laughs> it's easier to repress things. I think there's a competitiveness in there against her feelings with her own mother and her desire to better her her own mother's maternal qualities but a fear that she probably won't be able to do that, mm-hmm. a fear and a frustration that all the things that she's been working toward and aiming toward she may not now be able to achieve because she will be a mother as well as a businesswoman and how do these two things coalesce in in her life. Um, I think that she hasn't really considered that as as a path for her life, and so it's quite a shock. Yeah, she her conversation with the doctor was something else. Everything looks healthy. Okay, good. Great. And you're still well, no spotting, no bleeding? No, no. Okay. Well, in terms of all the results I have for you, there's nothing I think we should be concerned about. Mm-hmm. Okay. The doctor didn't know how to respond, right? That was <laughs> yeah. that was like, oh, okay. Especially with the conversation about the viability of the pregnancy, I think for her, in a way, it would have been easier if there was something mm-hmm. wrong so that she could have a reason to terminate and not feel guilt. But with nothing wrong, there's no reason to not continue. Right, right. So it's a very complex Hoping for the worst in a in a strange, un sort of unfaced, you know, way. Absolutely. Why doesn't she tell Tom that she's pregnant? It's too complicated, I think. It changes too much. There's too much going on around her father just died. There's there's so many business machinations happening that like to then bring Tom into it in a familial sense would confuse it again. She doesn't know how she feels about it herself. In, in a way, she would, I think, would prefer to decide what her own feelings are about this before she has Tom's feelings muddying the waters. So when you're thinking about Shiv with a little baby, um, it makes me think what it's like for her growing up. I thought that scene between uh, Shiv and her mother last season in Italy was devastating. Yeah. We get hints about it. It was never spelled out. What do you imagine Shiv's childhood was like, or have you imagined it at all? Yeah, I think there's some revelations in that scene because I feel like her, well, for me, the companion scene to that is the is the final scene of episode, of season three, where in some ways she realizes that actually Dad never wanted them. He just wanted to win them from mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. Mum, which sets up Shiv as as a parent. I can't really imagine her with a little baby at all, and in some ways you probably won't have it with her a lot. She would have nannies, and she would 
the the premise of Shiv becoming a mother is is fascinating to me. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I just was thinking the other day, you don't see Kendall's kids anymore, or they mention them in any way. They're just gone yeah. from the equation. But for a woman, it's much different in the impact on the family dynamic because she's already hindered because she's a woman, even if she might be most like Logan or the smartest. Yeah, yeah, I think... Um, that's definitely what Shiv would be contemplating is that what in what ways is this going to hold me back, not uh, propel me forward, which is pretty like as a standard of society, as a that's the thought we go to first and 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 presume is 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 what she would be thinking. Yes, that that's right for the character for Shiv, but also you know <laughs> a human being growing another human being entirely from scratch is an extraordinary feat no matter what. That's the powerful one. That's the strong one. Yeah. That's the one that like manages to get it out of their body and manages to then feed it from the things that they make in their own body. Like women are extraordinary and yet those are the very things that we use to yeah, yeah, to hold them back. It's wild. I was just telling someone if men got to be pregnant there'd be big temples to to pregnancy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Paternity leave would be like 23 years. It wouldn't be like tall buildings shaped like dicks. It'd be massive domes, you know, shaped like <laughs> wombs and breasts. Yeah, presumably. So we see the alliance between Shiv, Kendall, and Roman start to crumble in this episode, too. She gets sidelined by her brothers. They become co-CEOs. Why does she agree to let them do this? She fights a little bit, but backs down pretty quickly. That was a surprise to me. Yeah, I think this sort of, it's a case of like running out of options at a space of feeling in the sort of process of grief and being kind of cornered into, well, if you're not on the team, then whose team are you on? And at that time, she's not on Tom's team. <laughs> she doesn't really mm -hmm. have many places to turn. There's always like, what is going to benefit me in the short term? And then what is going to benefit me in the long term for Shiv? Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, the moment that sticks with me when they're fighting about whether Kendall's name is underlined or crossed out, I believe it was crossed out, Kendall says, well, it sure as shit doesn't say Shiv. And that seemed to land. What was your reaction when you first heard that line? Uh, it's, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's a bit of a full stop in a way. Because it, yeah, well, what, what were my father's dying wishes? Mm -hmm. And I never got to hear them. I never got, you know, it's talking into the vacuum on the phone. And then seeing scribbled pieces of paper that still not even mentioned, still not even an afterthought, that the only afterthought really is Kendall. Right. And even if he gets crossed out, you don't even have the chance to get crossed out, right? Yeah. Well, it just wasn't there in the first place. Those like feel like messages from the grave. Why do you think it always surprises her? It always seems to surprise her because she is the smartest probably but among them. And that's often the case. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's got something to do with the hope. You know, no matter how much we might not like our parents or or our family situation, there's always the hope that that it might get resolved. It's meant to be the strongest bond. It's meant to be something foundational that we can rely on and intuitively in, in, in wrapped up in that is is hope that it will be. Mm -hmm. And also just for the thrust of, of a narrative in a in storytelling, it's that's always good, you know. Yes, hope seems to always kill her. You can see it in her eyes, which is really the problem for her. She has too much of it. Yeah. Um, so Shiv wants to run a business with her brothers, but also has interest in politics. In this episode, she's mad at the GOP candidate. Mencken is coming to the wake. Talk to me about her politics and how firm she is, because she was there was much more of it in the early seasons. You think she'd rather be on a political campaign or or this business and feels this business is a way to influence politics? Yeah, I think she's probably come to see the light in terms of media being the more powerful in 
it's not the decision making in terms of policy, but it is the more powerful in terms of shaping a nation's response to decision making and policy. I think uh, having the megaphone and being the messenger is probably a more powerful position than being the president. And I think she can see that Mencken as a presidential candidate is a pretty dangerous choice for the future in their reality of what America looks like in their universe. But how firm is she in those political values? Uh, I would say pretty happy to stand in what she knows she doesn't want, but would be more flexible in stating what she does want. You know, I think she knows she definitely doesn't want Mencken to be up there, that he does represent something dangerous and something volatile and rooted in what she sees as hate and discrimination. And and though she may not sort of be the hippy-dippy leftist, yummy-dummy demi, I think Kendall calls her at one point, mm-hmm. she's not totally that. She's probably far more centrist, but she's definitely not on the right with, with Mencken. Or any of them, really. Yeah. Do you think she's progressed as a person? Not for the better, I think. Uh, I think she's... She's evolved in, 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 in ways and she's, she's certainly grown as a woman and grown in confidence, maybe facing things of more of a complex nature and not having the toolkit to deal with things like that, like just agreeing to a marriage that she maybe wasn't 100% in just because it fitted her idea of what she wanted her life to be mm-hmm. and following the steps of what she believed what her ambition and succession should be you know, these things don't satisfy in the end. And uh, I think yeah. that's what she's being faced with in, in season four. So maybe it's beyond the end of season four that she grows and changes. Maybe. I don't know. She's pretty damaged. Yeah. Her marriage is falling apart this season, finally. And yet Tom is the only one she can open up to. She tells him, it feels like I'm the only one that lost something that they were actually fucking wanted here and it's not coming back. What is she talking about here and what did she lose? I think she's talking about her dad there. I think, you know, it's very selfish, very narcissistic sort of point of view to think that she's the only one who loved dad, that she's the only one who had a connection with him. I think, you know, and siblings can can do that. He's always been such a solid figure in their lives, such a mainstay and such a um, sort of anchor of influence. So for that to go away completely for there to be no future anymore with that relationship mm-hmm. in in terms of creating a relationship or repairing a relationship or or even getting the respect and admiration that they wish from him which then they believe would equal she believes would equal love there's no potential there anymore it's 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 gone and that's that's the grief yeah she's never ever going to get what she wanted anyway last question i know we've got many episodes to come but this is the final season what are you going to miss most about playing Shaban Roy you know, I think it's been such a gift to work on writing of this caliber, not just in, in the dramatic opportunities, but the comedic lines and, and opportunities there. And and I think playing Shiv in, in such an ensemble, I will miss working with, with everybody or the cast, I think. That's what I'll miss the most. Because, you know, Shiv and, and Roman will never have a scene again together and Shiv and Tom will never... We don't know what happens with him. <laughs> we don't know what all what what beyond episode ten. Where do these characters go? What are what? How do their lives continue? Uh-huh. And I that's the sadness for me. It's the same kind of thing. It's like the grief is over the potential of what was lost of of what, the things that we'll never see and the things we'll never experience. You've done an amazing job doing it, and oh, thank, uh, you. thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Kara. And now let's get further into episode four with Lucy Preble, writer and executive producer on Succession. Welcome back, Lucy. Hi, Cara. Nice to be here. A uh, lot has happened. A lot has happened. Many things. But first, I'm going to go not to the, you know, the obvious dead body in the room. Shiv is pregnant, and she seems to have known this for a while. Tell me about the choice to reveal her pregnancy here. Yeah, well, we wanted to slowly reveal the information because we're not one of those shows, as I'm sure you can tell, that wants to immediately just like stuff all the drama and immediately grab you by the lapels and go, keep watching, keep watching. We kind of like to move more slowly than that. 
And there's obviously so much going on in these first three episodes, particularly the third. And we thought it was a rather nice reveal, actually, for her to have this phone call with the doctor at the top of four. Also because I think Shiv has been a bit in denial about it up until this point as well. Yeah, She's broken up from her husband, essentially. They've separated. And she's discovered that she's pregnant. And I think she's had mixed feelings about that. Yeah. So what are the feelings? What are the feelings? What's your take? Well, I guess the way I always think of it is it wasn't bad news exactly, but it was the worst possible time. Mm-hmm. What I love about that performance, as well as the the writing, is it's not something you see very often. And I think it's very truthful, which is this is a very complicated situation for her. Whereas the fact that she's pregnant with her husband, who she separated from the child, and she isn't even particularly sure that she 100%, you know, wants to go through that, it's now all on her. And right. so, so I think that's a big part of what she's feeling, which is, oh, I guess that's good news. But in a way, awful as it is to say, it would have been easier to hear the other. The other, right, absolutely. So this episode happens almost in real time with a countdown to the board meeting, and which Shiv is a part of. And, and it's, she's much more engaged in this than having the child in lots of ways. Why zero in on these few hours the morning after Logan's death? I guess we wanted to really live in the emotion of that for the kids. Um, that seems like the sort of dramatically interesting thing to do. But we were also conceptually drawn to the idea of all these people gathering at Logan's old apartment for almost a bottle episode of a kind of wake to live into what their emotional state was and not to sort of zip around and be and, and be sort of like trying to find the next story beat, but to wake up with them with the terrible hangover of grief and the realization that, yes, someone is dead and this is what happens and this is what it's like. And I think in the writer's room, there were a few people who had had experiences of deaths in their own lives or had known people with a certain level of um, not fame, but sort of political import. And it seemed like a fairly common thing for people to come and talk about them right away. And that's why we have the setup with Ron Petkus, who's a figure that we've seen in the previous season as a sort of like high profile GOP person coming and talking about Logan. Absolutely. So characters have thought a lot about this day for years. I mean, the whole show is called Succession. What are things in this episode that you tucked away until now, though? We were always interested in how the children would actually react emotionally to their to their father's mm-hmm. death and, and sometimes the perverse way that people do. So Roman, who one might think would be the most immediately physically and emotionally stricken, is actually in quite a strong form of denial, I think, in this episode. Pre-grieved. He pre-grieved. Yes, exactly. He says he's pre-grieved and Shiv says he's yeah, gave at the office. And, and Kendall, who again, one might expect to sort of be deeply distraught, and we do see him that way at the beginning of the episode, is finding a sort of freedom and energy from it, which isn't much talked about in grief, but I've seen it in my own life that occasionally, particularly when a when a father dies, I've known people who have been strangely, um, a weight has gone that was once there in both senses. And I think we mm-hmm. talked about that quite a lot with, with Kendall. So that's something we were always interested in. And also we were just, we were interested in the feeding frenzy also of sort of powerful, important people trying to jockey for position in the death of a luminary. Yeah. Oh, it's all jockeying. It's as if you were in a meeting at Twitter right now with Elon there and all his enablers around him trying to see who could kiss his butt more firmly. <laughs> right. Anyway, things take a turn in this episode with that piece of paper is discovered with Kendall's name on it. It creates a big mess. But let's be real, Lucy, it is hard to tell if Kendall's name is underlined or crossed out. Um, what's your take on this piece of paper? Do they have debates in the writer's room about underlined or crossed out? I'm saying crossed out. Oh, Really? It's one of my favorite things ever when we find the idea that helps land the story point because Jesse had, had had this idea that maybe there was a name in the safe and that that was and it was an interesting idea. But there's something a bit sort of mythical about it. You know, if there's a name on right. a piece of paper and we don't normally love that kind of stuff. And it was when somebody pitched in the room, but maybe there's like a line, maybe it's underlined, but maybe it's not. It's crossed out. You just know it's a succession story 
upbeat because that level of confusion is so grounded and human. And no date, no date. No date. And the argument that people can have about that in the moment just feels very both funny and heartbreaking, which is where we love to be. And it's also one of my favourite props to create because you've got mm-hmm. someone whose job it literally is on set to underline a word but looks like it could also be crossed out. And so you're looking at like 10 different versions of it and then picking the one and going, no, that's nailed it. That's nailed it. That's exactly between underlined and crossed out. Do you have an opinion? I say it was crossed out. What do you say? Yeah, I think it's much more likely to have been crossed out. That's the sort of thing I can imagine Logan doing. He's he's sort of petulant or was petulant in that way. Whereas I can't, yeah. I, I really can't imagine Logan sitting down to bother to underline Kendall's name. That's just not his style. Yeah, and also, why do you put it in the safe? Yeah, I, I don't know. Why is it there? Just to fuck with them. <laughs> or as likely, just forgot about it, which again is very Logan, just to to, to not really have, have thought it through. I, I really want to zero on one scene, though, which goes to this that stood out to me. It's between Frank and Kendall where they talk about that piece of paper. Let's listen. Is it real, Frank? I don't know. My dad wanted me to take over. Sometimes. <laughs> you know that. He did. Sometimes. He made me hate him, and he died. I feel like he didn't like me. Oh. I disappointed him. No. No? Come on. We think these grand horror things, at times like these, these ice shelves are going to come at us in the night and take our heads off. It's not true. He was an old bastard, and he loved you. He loved you. I love that scene. That was very touching. Talk about that, because he's more kind to Kendall than Logan ever was. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons I love that scene. You know, nothing is ever made worse by Peter Friedman being in it. Like, everything is made better. It's interesting, because on paper, that scene is fairly simple. But Peter Friedman brought this just emotional texture to it where... You just believe him, whether or not he really thinks Logan loved Kendall. Yeah, I don't think he does. Yeah, right. But he's he's giving a kindness to this bereaved son in this moment. And what I love is it gives this idea of Frank, who's, you know, often in the background and is, is obviously a sort of avuncular figure to the kids, amusingly loathed by Roman. But in this moment, you kind of see the decades that these people have been around each other. And he was probably there and saw them all as babies in diapers and and kind of you get all of that from his performance. And I, yeah, Yeah. he needs a father in that moment. And you kind of see the father he could have had if it had just like (laughs) a decent dad. And I don't think he was doing it to advantage himself, which everybody does. Everyone says everything to advantage themselves. Yeah, and when you have a scene in this show where someone's not doing that, it really blazes, doesn't it? Because you suddenly, you feel genuine kindness, which is so rare. Yeah, and he really needed it right then. And he needed to feel like he was back in or that he was loved. Why does he need to be back in? Well, I guess that's what Frank calls him on, isn't it? Like, you know, Frank in that moment says to him, you've got things cooking. Why are you even interested? And... I think the only answer to that is that it is succession. And part of what what succession is, is Kendall's burning, almost incomprehensible desire to replace his father. And for the first time, that seat is really properly open. Um, So I guess the the only explanation I can give is it would be against his nature not to. Not to want this. One of the things that he also asks, is an interesting question in the scene, is it real? And in season two, when Logan tells Shiv he wants her to be CEO, she asks, is it real? What are the kids actually asking? Are you dangling something and then you're going to take it away? Or what do you perceive? There's a business nature term to it. Is it real? Like, have you really got the money? Like, is this deal going mm-hmm. to happen? There's a business thing to that phrase, is it real? But there's also this you know, existential thing that I'm very interested in and a lot of my work that I've ever done has a character ask another character that question. Because so much of what people are trading in is um, imperceptible and, and unquantifiable. Money is that to some extent, but also love is that, you know, do you really love me? is a question that it's so difficult to answer. Like, well, what does that mean? You can't see it, you can't hold it, you can't touch it. Very similar to well, to money in some ways, you know. 
so the show is kind of built on these twin ideas of is it real? Is the deal real? Is the money real? Are you for real? But also, is love real? And in the case so much with these kids and this family, the answer really tragically is no. No, no, because they get things dangled. And how true do you think of any of Logan's offers? I think he's just playing them all the time, and I don't know why. I mean, I think, I think, yeah, one can read it whatever way one wants. I've always been interested in Logan believing things in the moment or at least being able to persuade himself, but then they pass very quickly, like weather systems, and all that's left is him and all that's left is money and all that's left is winning. Is he aware in the moment when he's dangling to Shiv and saying, I always thought it should be you? I don't know if he's so Machiavellian that he's able to hold two thoughts at the same time. I think he's, you know, not to George Costanza it too much, but if you can believe the lie yourself, you're going to be a much better liar. And I think there may be occasions where that's true. It just doesn't last very long with him. Yeah, I just think he doesn't think they are qualified. I think when he said you're not serious people and you're losers, that's exactly what he thinks. And that's this great disappointment that he didn't grow a kid who could be. Yeah, but I think it's a question as to whether anybody could ever have satisfied that for him. You know, even some great kid. Yeah. Hey, Hugo. Um, You know the stuff. What stuff? The bad dad stuff. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. It's what he would do. He'd want this for the firm. Right. Okay. So action that. But soft. No prints. At the end of the episode, my final question, Kendall looks at the photo of the paper and then decides to do this covert smear campaign against Logan. I think it's because he's mad because he doesn't know if it's an underline or a cross out. What, what does the paper have to do with Kendall's decision? Yeah, I, I I think you may be onto something there. On a deep level, I think there's an anger there being enacted. But also on the other side of that very same coin, Kendall's often driven by this idea of, well, it's what dad would do. Like, he says it a lot, partly because he wants to be like his father, but also, as you say, there's an aggression underneath that, which is like, well, I'm only doing what he would have done. It's a way of excusing himself and of lessening his sense of guilt often. That's often a key thing with Kendall. And it feels like what it allows him to do is go, actually, dad was a ruthless son of a bitch. And he was proud of that. And in this moment, if I'm a ruthless son of a bitch, well, he can't blame me. Nobody can blame me. And so he gets to hide his personal anger underneath this sort of business decision, which is got to move on, got to keep moving. And that is a Logan trait, that Logan trait of you know, he's dead now. Come on, let's get over it. Let's move forward. Do you think that's a good decision? Will he regret it? Because he's got, he's so full of regret. This guy lives in Regretville and the father did not. Do I think it's a good decision? I think, I think it's a cathartic decision for Kendall and some to Mm -hmm. be like, my father built this reputation and this business and then was willing to sell it. Well, if you're willing to sell it, I'm willing to shit all over it. Yeah, it is. It's the ultimate sort of get back at him kind of thing. And he's dead. He can't do anything about it. (laughs) He's dead. Right. He's dead. Lucy, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I'm looking forward to seeing the rest of them and and talking about the rest of them. Thanks, Cara. Now it's time to dive into the real world of succession. And today we're discussing another family media behemoth. Joining me are Rachel Abrams and James B. Stewart, the authors of the new book Unscripted about the Redstone family, which owns, among other things, CBS, Paramount. It's a family that shares a number of similarities with the Roys. For listeners who don't know, can you tell us who Sumner Redstone is? Rachel, why don't you start? Sure. Sumner Redstone was one of the most important media figures of the 20th century. Um, He became a full-fledged media mogul in his 70s, if you can believe it, um, when he basically acquired a number of companies that produced the shows and films that we're all quite familiar with and really shaped our culture. Um, He owned Viacom, Paramount, CBS, uh, which included Nickelodeon, MTV. And at their peak, a lot of these companies were really minting money and, like I said, really shaping our culture. Why did he start buying then, and where did he get the wherewithal to do so? Uh, He really started out with very little. He started with two drive-in movie theaters outside of Boston, and it was really his, like, tenacity and drive to win that 
in part fueled his intense buying spree. I mean, one of the really defining moments of his career was beating Barry Diller to acquire Paramount, which he had to do at all costs. So he really, you know, he was ruthless in business, which also played out in his personal life. He was quite ruthless even with his own children. He was indeed. So James, what drew you both to the story? Why why this one? Obviously, it's full of sex, lies, and <laughs> videotape, but what else? Well, we were drawn into the story sort of from more recent events, which uh, focus initially on the downfall of the once extremely powerful Les Moonves, who was chief executive of CBS and made CBS the number one network. And he ran a follow of the Me Too movement, his very dark past of alleged sexual assaults and misconduct surfaced. Mm -hmm. And as we became more involved with that story, which, of course, CBS was controlled by Sumner Redstone and the Redstone family and their trust, we were drawn more deeply into the family drama, particularly Sumner was declining both mentally and physically as he entered his 90s. There was a battle. Two of his many mistresses moved into the mansion with him and began to assert control over the empire. And that is what really drew his daughter, Sherry Redstone, back into the family affairs, back into the business, an attempt to wrest control of the fortune and the empire for the Redstone family. So... Mm -hmm. The story became much bigger than we originally realized. And the arc of it pretty much was the daughter, Sherry Redstone, somewhat against her will, being drawn into this shark tank of mostly men and a few scheming women, all of whom were trying to seize control of the spoils of the Redstone Empire. So Succession draws its inspiration from a number of different media families, but there's some obvious parallels between the Redstones and the Roys. Rachel, how do Logan and Sumner compare as businessmen? Do you see, I mean, obviously there's a big dollop of Rupert Murdoch here, but how do they compare with Sumner Redstone? In a word, ruthless. They are both ruthless businessmen. In fact, a theme throughout all four seasons is Logan basically telling Kendall, who is the most likely heir apparent, although it's never really clear, that he's not a killer. He has to be a killer and he's not. And that's why he's not going to succeed. And that killer instinct is something that I think Sumner would probably see himself, maybe not in the same word, but in similar terms, just that the need to win no matter what. And Sumner was a man who could not even let, he could not celebrate the achievements of his children if he perceived them to have cost him anything. For example, he couldn't even let Sherry Redstone beat him in a tennis match. He couldn't be proud. Most parents would probably be proud that their children had you know, surpassed their talents and abilities, not Sumner Redstone. And I think the ruthlessness and the need to win at all costs, that is the most striking parallel between the two characters. James, talk about Sumner's fatherly ways. Uh, well, Sumner was a terrible father. <laughs> and you could say the same thing, I think, about Logan. And I think a major theme of our book is the relationship between this very rich and powerful father and his daughter. And I, sh I should say he had a son as well. The son bailed out early on. This is different from succession. Mm -hmm. The son was so upset by it, so enraged, so humiliated. He sold out his part of the empire for $250 million and retreated to a ranch in Colorado. And has never really publicly surfaced again. He didn't, even, he didn't even come to his father's funeral. But he was very similar to Logan, or Logan was similar to Sumner in his almost, uh, you know, this perverse ability he had to withhold approval, withhold love and affection, and then dangle it and then bestow it to say, oh, you're the heir apparent. No, you're not the heir apparent. You're not competent to run the company. Oh, you're the only one who could do it. But he did horrible things to her. I mean, he would write scathing emails, belittling her performance in the company, using extremely foul language, which I would not use on this podcast. Feel free. It is succession. <laughs> the word starts with a C. And then he copied it to the top executives of the company and the board members. Mm -hmm. So they all saw this humiliating, you know, thing. one of his closest advisors, longtime lawyer, fellow trustee and board member said, Sumner, why are you doing this? Can you be a little nicer to your own daughter? And he said, you know, I'll tell her whatever I please. He was absolutely unrepentant about that. And look, I'm not a psychologist, but I think part of the dynamic of this story, and I think you see it as well in succession is this competitiveness between the parent and the child. And the parent wants the child to succeed on the one hand. On the other hand, the minute the child starts to succeed, the parent sees it somehow diminishing his own power and influence 
and then there's a retaliation for them. I'm not a psychologist, but I think that is not that uncommon. And certainly, I think one of the fascinating things about succession, and I believe our book as well, is that anybody with parents has struggled with, you know, on some level, Mm -hmm. gaining the love and approval that they desperately crave, and that very few of us in life ever get that unconditional love that, you know, should be every child's due. There's no question that Sumner Redstone was abusive toward Sherry. The withholding of affection, Mm -hmm. I don't know how to compare the two, to be honest with you, but I, I, I think in many ways Sumner Redstone was a lot worse to his children than Logan Roy is to his kids. I mean, at one point in the series, you do see Logan Roy bail Kendall out of a really serious problem, um, which, you know, he might have been doing to manipulate him later on. But I think the viewers are supposed to wonder how much he does out of love or affection or care. Um, And certainly in the fourth episode, we see that he actually did have, at least at some point, faith enough in his son to leave some kind of document saying that he was, you know, hoping that his son would succeed him, which is at points Sumner Redstone, you know, praised Cherry, but he also made it really clear publicly and humiliatingly that he did not want her to succeed him. Right. One other thing that strikes me about the show and the book, which is that people often think that business stories are divorced from people stories and very human dramas. Like you wouldn't describe Succession as a series about Waystar Royco. I mean, it is Mm -hmm. about that. Our book is about Paramount Viacom. But at the heart, both of these stories are about family dramas and flawed people. Right. Now, James, there's an impression leading up to Logan's death that he's too powerful to die. And of course, oh, well, um, you wrote that Sumner Redstone joked about being immortal. He was he had that. I met him several times. Do you think he really believed that? He did say this constantly. He claimed to have the sex life of a 20 year old and he made all these other uh, boasts about his eternal youth. No, I don't think he really believed it. He was not that delusional. But I think he wanted other people to think that he believed it. And the reason for that was that until his last breath, he was never going to give up any kind of control. Right. He didn't want anyone thinking he was a lame duck. I mean, literally, he can't speak. He's on a feeding tube. He needs constant nursing care. But no, he is hanging in there and he is wielding power, really, practically till his last breath. And I think that was the tactic. But there was another important dimension here but I think it distinguishes Sumner somewhat from Logan. He did confide in one of his mistresses that part of the reason he said that is that he feared the final judgment. To my knowledge, he was not particularly religious, but that he did feel there was going to be a reckoning when he died and that the reckoning for him was going to be extremely bad, that he would finally pay. Yeah. He was self-aware enough to know that he had done so many bad things that he would be judged harshly. But again, in real life, what I find so interesting about this is he got the reckoning while he was alive. I mean, you don't have to wait necessarily to die to be called to Mm -hmm. account for your behavior. And I think that's something he never realized. So, James, episode four is our first full episode without Logan Roy. Based on reporting that you've done, talk about the first few hours after a CEO dies, especially one of these, you know, founding CEOs. And then let's talk about what happened when Sumner Redstone dies and who stepped up. Well, succession planning is, you know, important in every publicly traded company. And Viacom and uh, CBS were publicly traded separately. Now Paramount Global is publicly traded. And the company in succession is also a publicly traded company with with shareholders. So there, the CEO, if the CEO is in office and dies, there's supposed to be a succession plan in place approved by the board. And generally, mm-hmm. generally there is. I can't offhand think of an instance where a CEO has died suddenly uh, where there wasn't someone ready ready to sort of step in, at least on an interim basis, while well, the board might have conducted another search. What happened in Sumner's case? So in, when Sumner died, finally, there was no power vacuum there. The great battles for control of the Paramount Empire had already taken place and were over. His actual death was a relative ripple. By now, Sherry, his daughter, controlled the trust, controlled the trustees, controlled the board members, of the public and company, she then proceeded to encourage the merger of CBS and Viacom into what now became Paramount Global. You do not have, as in succession at Paramount, another generation chomping at the bit to take over. Sherry's children, none of them have shown any actual interest in managing or running the assets of Paramount. Got it. One of the things, Rachel, things didn't go well for Carrie once Logan is gone. This is his mistress, I guess. She's essentially thrown to the curb immediately, taken out the back door. 
We were talking about getting married, and he was making arrangements about us. So could you check? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, he was gonna, he was gonna make a note. He was gonna write his lawyer or something. He said, "Can you check? Can um, you check on it?" I got it. Do I have your? Redstone was linked with these women who ran his life in the mansion. What became of those women? And talk about the Carries of the world, because there's often a carry. Carrie really jumped out to me. She's sobbing, but she's also asking Roman, you know, he was supposed to marry me. He said he would write it down. Can you check? Because she's being effectively blocked from going upstairs and checking herself. I think the viewers meant to wonder what, how much of her emotion is real sorrow and how much is all, you know, because she wants a piece of the money. And in the case of the women, I, I think people will come away from our book. Some of the Redstones live in Companions siphoned off millions of dollars and isolated from him from his family and told him his children didn't love him. So I think there was arguably more abusive behavior going on in the Redstone case. Mm -hmm. These women, by the way, I don't think people understand how close they almost came to actually taking control of the companies. And they did make off with at least $150 million. How? In one afternoon, there were two separate wire transfers of $45 million each. But the short answer is because there were no guardrails around this billionaire that you think that a man like him would have to keep people like this out. I mean, that's one of the big takeaways is that a very rich older man wanting the companionship of a younger, beautiful woman is a tale as old as time, right? This is not a unique story. I think what was interesting about it, though, is that in succession, we see that Logan has layers and layers and layers of people around him. It is impossible for a normal person to get access to Logan Roy. But in Sumner Redstone's case, his appetites, perhaps, or his their various vulnerabilities, the fact that nobody was around him telling him, well, Sumner, I don't think this is a good idea, or, you know, he basically left himself very vulnerable at the end of his mm -hmm. life to users and hangers on. Yeah, I think these people are much more vulnerable than you think, actually, in real life. This episode takes a big turn, speaking of changes, when Frank and Carl discover the letters saying Logan wanted Kendall to be CEO. So the news starts to turn the kids against each other. It gets very tense. Let's play the clip. There are some additions in pencil that he put in about artifacts. Uh, and I th we think from context, it, they were added maybe in the last 18 months. Oh, so... He underlined recently. Underlined or crossed out? Shiv. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not saying for or against. I'm just, as a matter of fact, it's... Are you serious? I mean, it's kind of... Okay, let me see the thing. It's underlined or crossed out. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter because it's legally, it's the board, yeah, who will choose. Exactly. Yeah. The market, the shareholders, the board, we all want the sale to go through. So it's an interim position, really. Sure. I mean, anyone could do that. And since he said, I mean, I mean he has said. I mean, Ken, sure, man, I get it. But like, this, this thing is old and you've tried to put him in jail like 12 times since then. So I, I wonder what was the... You know, the underlining or the crossing out and the unknown age of the document isn't essentially moot. You know, it's an impossible to decipher. Well, it sure as fucking shit doesn't say Shiv. <laughs> it sure as fucking shit doesn't. Rachel, Shiv loses the job of CEO to her brothers in this episode. When thinking about Shiv, I can't help but think of Sumner's daughter, Sherry Redstone, who talked about, who was also intimately involved in the business. Do you think they're similar, or is it more Liz Murdoch kind of thing? There's always a daughter sort of hanging around that's getting a short shrift. And in this case, there was only one child who was even slightly interested in the business. I don't really see a lot of similarities between Shiv and Sherry Redstone. Sherry Redstone is a a lawyer by training, I believe, mm -hmm. and an educated person who had had a, a lot more experience in the family business than Shiv had. I mean, Shiv, as her siblings are constantly reminding her, like, doesn't really have a ton of experience. I don't think her experience or education kind of holds much weight against Sherry's. Sherry also didn't have siblings to jockey with for control of the company. The fact that they're women, the fact that they're getting sidelined by their father, I think that's kind of where the similarities end. Mm -hmm. Do you think Sumner wanted his daughter to run the company? What role do you think her gender played in that? Uh, I think that's a, a really good point about the gender. I think that was one of the big stumbling blocks. While he had his full mental capacity ever saying, I want you to take over. I mean, it is not crystal clear, given Sumner's impaired mental state, how much he really knew of what he wanted to do and what was happening in those final months and years. 
And certainly the fact that his daughter was a woman, I think, was one of the stumbling blocks he had. And by the way, I think that very well could be true in the Murdoch family as well, where you have the two daughters have never really been considered serious candidates. So after a loss like this, Rachel, people are focused on the business. They don't have time to grieve. Was Sherry ever able to grieve? I know you have that scene in the book where she's singing at the gravesite. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, our book, our story basically ends with the death of Sumner Redstone. Unlike unlike Succession, the death of Logan Roy triggers the Succession fight, but all of that is resolved by the time that Sumner dies. And one thing that really amazed me, and Jim and I were talking about this earlier, with the fourth episode of Succession, like, we were wondering how the heck they could have known that Sherry Redstone at her father's funeral you know, ask someone, do you think you really loved me? I mean, that's basically the exact same thing that Kendall asks Frank. And we were just astonished by this. And certainly in the show, they do not have any time to grieve. Sherry, because she had a lot of the fight behind her, I would I would imagine probably did have more. The very end of our book where Sherry has to ask her father's close confidant whether he really loved her is incredibly poignant moment and a very sad one. I mean, we, we've also, Rachel and I have talked about how impressed we were that Sherry loved her father so much, given what he did to her. Yeah. I guess it just is a testament to, as the judge said in one of the proceedings, the strength of these family ties and the longing of a child to be loved by a parent. And maybe that becomes even more acute if the the behavior is as abusive as it was in this case. She certainly, she sobbed uncontrollably at the time her father died. She was on the phone to her father's sick room, uh, talking to the nurse Uh, listening to her father's last breath. She was there at the graveside sobbing uncontrollably. And she's sobbed since then on a number of occasions. And I think it's going to take time. But yes, I think she has both grieved and she has matured. And over the years we're reporting this book, I witnessed Sherry gain maturity and poise and communication skills. And I think she has grown a great deal through this experience. Very, very last question for both of you. And it's just a single answer. Is Unscripted a happy ending? And will this succession have a happy ending? I'm going to say no and no. If you look at happiness purely in relative terms, I would say uh, yes. I think it does have a happy ending that Sherry prevails in the end. And does that mean all demons are gone? No. But I think in relative terms, it's a happy ending. And what about succession? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see much happiness ahead there. Maybe with years of therapy, (laughs) that's a whole other series. We really appreciate you coming on. It's a great book. Thank you both, Rachel and James. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Logan's death has made quite a mess for everyone. And even though Kendall has finally got what he's always wanted to be the CEO of Waystar Royco, I'm afraid he still isn't a killer like his dad. I wonder when he'll figure that out. I want to thank my guests, James Stewart and Rachel Abrams, authors of the new book, Unscripted, and Lucy Preble, executive producer and writer of Succession. And of course, Sarah Snook, who plays Shiv Roy. Next week, we'll be back to talk about episode five, and it's time for the Roys to go to Europe. New episodes of the podcast come out every Sunday night after the latest episode of Succession airs on HBO and HBO Max. The official HBO Succession podcast is a production of HBO and Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Barry Finkel and Gabrielle Lewis. Our producers are Elliot Adler, Ben Goldberg, and Noah Camuso. Our editor is Darby Maloney. Engineering and mixing by Hannes Brown. Production music is courtesy of HBO. Special thanks to Michael Gluckstadt, Kenya Reyes, and Savon Slater at HBO Podcasts. And I am, of course, Kara Swisher. We'll see you next week. And if you're feeling down, listen to these words of encouragement from Carl. You're a clumsy interloper and no one trusts you. The only guy pulling for you is dead. And now you're just married to the ex-boss's daughter and she doesn't even like you. And you are fair and squarely fucked. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show, like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. 
Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.